Right, brilliant. Um, welcome to the first CMC podcast, um, which is being launched on the, the week that both NICE and NHS England are publishing a report on medical cannabis, uh, and also the same week that Health Education England are publishing their e-learning module, which will be available on the CMC site. Uh, my name's Harry Gugliani, I'm the COO of Grow Biotech and I'm a member of the CMC and I'm here with Steve Moore and Dr Daniel Couch who have just uh, released a report uh, recently called Breaking the Embargo. So um, Steve, do you want to tell us a little bit uh, about why we're here and uh, perhaps introduce both of yourselves and, and, and your experience? Yeah, thanks Harry and Daniel. Um, yeah, this is a timely uh, first uh, edition of the CMC podcast. Uh, it comes at a, an important juncture for medical cannabis policy in the UK. Um, we have two major reports being published. The uh, NICE interim guidelines, will, which will provide us some insight into how um, likely it is that medical cannabis products will be prescribed in the NHS. Always worth reiterating that last year, 97% of all prescriptions written in the UK were written uh, by the NHS, so it's not insignificant. Uh, their final uh, guidelines will be published in October. And then alongside that, and perhaps, perhaps more interesting, is the, um, the report of NHS England, which uh, the Secretary of State Matt Hancock ha asked for back in April this year, when he expressed his immense frustration at the lack of uh, NHS prescriptions of cannabis-based medical products. Um, it's not obvious at all that from the 1st of November last year that anybody has received a prescription in the NHS for a cannabis-based medical product that was formerly um, illegal before the 1st of November. There may have been some, but none I think have been uh, reported. So I think the failure to do it has been absolute. So I think the insights from that report will be quite crucial. So together what we're going to see is a picture of the current view of the responsible department, the Department for Health and Social Care, and uh, uh, the, uh, our principal health care provider, the National Health Service, uh, their attitude towards uh, cannabis-based products, yeah. So um, we were, we've, been, we've predicted the likely outcome uh, we've spoken to insiders to stop inside both the organisations to get their uh, take on where this is headed. And that's helped inform the Breaking Embargo report that Daniel Couch co-authored with uh, David Horn and with Charles Ackle. And that was published uh, late last month at our policy summit at Somerset House. But it, it seems to have a special pertinence now in light of what's been happening since. Brilliant. Thanks, Steve. Um, so um, just before we get on to the content of the report, um, which I think is actually really thorough and sets out um, all of the, the issues in, 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 in some pretty concisely, but also in detail, I think is uh, really good. But before we get on to that, Steve, is it worth just uh, giving listeners a reminder of where we're at in terms of the regulation and the law and how the UK looks? Um, and then maybe the disparity between that and what we're actually seeing. Okay, that's fine. So I think what we have in place since the 1st of November, for the first time, is it's been possible for specialist clinicians, uh, uh, GMC registered clinicians in the UK, there's about 6,000 of them, to effectively hospital doctors who could prescribe uh, uh, 
under the specials route. Um, important to understand the, the scale of the specials uh, route in the UK. So again, last year, only 0.7% of all NHS prescribing expenditure was on special products. 99.3% uh, was for products that are were both licensed by uh, the European Medicines Agency or the MHRA and had been subsequently approved by NICE. So cannabis products at the moment are in, uh, a, in a kind of, you can almost describe as a kind of ghetto or a, a very small niche silo. Uh, and the, the in, that, in that context, there are all sorts of impediments to prescribe. So it's not just an issue of lack of evidence, which we're going to hear a lot of uh, in the, in the coming days, uh, or, or lack of licensed medicine, lack of lack of, lack of sort of licensed licenses, but it's also an issue about doctors not being indemnified when they prescribe these products. So I think there is series of quite profound challenges that exist. Um, the market so far for private prescriptions is relatively small in the UK. There, that, that's perhaps a subject, why that's the case is a subject for a, another podcast in due course. But I think for the purposes of this podcast, I think we would say that the litmus test of the success of a medical cannabis program in the UK was the extent to which it was, these products were being prescribed in the NHS. And as of the recording of this podcast, there's no evidence of them being prescribed. So I think this report is the only pro only alternative public policy proposition that I know of that begins to, begins to offer an alternative to what could now be considered to be a failed policy. Okay, so I mean, so the issue, the issue is that um, private prescriptions make up such an insignificant part of the medical market in the UK and the policy as it is isn't working for the NHS um, and I guess Daniel I'd be very interested to get your perspective as a as a medical doctor on on why that might be um, from a whole host of things whether that's uh, as Steve alluded to the the indemnification uh, issue uh, through to uh, the complexities of cannabis and, and, and beyond. Um, so I'd be really interested to get your, your high-level perspective on where the big blockers are for doctors on that. Yeah, okay, so this is very, the reason why the prescribing of medic medical cannabis or medicinal cannabis is so interesting from a, a medical culture point of view is that it draws together several factors um, in the medical psyche. Now, as Steve's touched on, you know, indemnity is a problem for doctors. In the UK, a doctor must be indemnified if they're going to prescribe a drug. And that is a major issue. But what's more of an issue is, is the knowledge around cannabis-based medicinal products, the experience of doctors around the, the practice of these medicines, both medically and recreationally, and also the novel area of the science. I mean, this, the science is very young. Um, and we really are yet to understand all the ins and outs of the prescribing and how medicinal cannabis or you know, cannabis-based medicinal products, whether it be synthetic or from, or from the plant itself, um, how they actually exert the, effect, the effects. And until we have a, a thorough knowledge of how they work both in a laboratory setting and also in a clinical setting, I think that we're gonna really struggle to get doctors to prescribe them regularly in, in, in regular public practice. And by that, I mean in the NHS. Okay, so that I mean that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, but it, so I guess we've um, in our line of work we've had a number of conversations with doctors and 
they've said, um, some of them have said that actually they're, they're quite aware that some of their patients are already using cannabis, uh, illicit cannabis, to help them uh, manage their symptoms. And I guess it'd be interesting to understand what what's the blocker for somebody who's maybe working in an NHS hospital or in an NHS clinic who sees these patients? What What's holding them back? So, so if you take your, I mean, obviously the legislation at the moment prevents anyone but a hospital specialist from prescribing. And by that we mean a consultant physician or surgeon working in an NHS hospital and they may only prescribe these medicines in a very tightly regulated framework um, uh, for a condition that they regularly treat. So, for example, if you had an epilepsy, a neurologist specialising in epilepsy, they could now theoretically prescribe cannabis-based medicinal products for epilepsy alone. They couldn't prescribe it, say, for uh, pains in the foot or um, anxiety, for example. They had to stick to epilepsy. And so, but if, if you take that doctor, for example, now, because the knowledge is amongst doctors is quite poor, as, as, as we stand here, I mean, most NHS doctors don't have the thorough knowledge of how cannabinoids work. Now, given that the premise that doctors are told from an early point in their training, almost from day one at medical school, that the most important part of being a doctor is that you do no harm. You know, we're here to try and make people better, to try and improve their lives. But if if you make their lives worse off because you made a bad decision because you didn't know the side effect profile of a drug and now that person is uh, is now disabled for life for example, we all know about the, the thalidomide scandal where women were prescribed it here and there for morning sickness and it led to uh, uh, it affecting people's lives you know 10 20 30 40 years down the line now the medical profession wants to avoid all of these practices in all settings and so when you have a novel drug agent and it doesn't matter whether it's a cannabis-based medicinal product or whether it's um some sort of operation or a, or a medical device doctors are from the get-go very cautious now and until a doctor knows exactly what the side effect profile is and what the benefits likely to be they're unable to make a decision as to whether they're going to prescribe it. And as I said, the default is always not to not prescribe if they don't have all the previous knowledge. And how does that, and no, it makes sense. And how would that, how would that normally work with, um, with other medicines? So what's different about cannabis, for example, from, um, from sure. the other, and, and the particular regime as well that, that we're operating under? Sure. So well, let's take let's put cannabis to one side and let's talk about your, your standard novel medical product that's not been in existence in the world. It's never been used recreationally. It gets developed by either researchers or a pharmaceutical um, uh, body. Um, they put it through some rigorous clinical testing and they if they find it's, it's beneficial and it has a good side effect profile, then they apply to the MRHA, they give their evidence and then they can then start telling doctors about it. Doctors never heard of it before. You know, I think they get given the information through uh, research or data given out of clinical trials, and the doctor can make them their mind up themselves. And that's the normal way that things happen. Now, if they're happy that, they're, that there's a good side effect profile and it's going to work really well for the patient, then the drug, generally speaking, if it's affordable, will start to be prescribed. And as more doctors hear about it, more doctors will prescribe it. And generally speaking, that's the pattern by which novel agents get brought into practice. The problem with medicinal cannabis is that all doctors have heard of cannabis. People are using it recreationally, you know, I would, you could argue that um, a good deal of medical students used it recreationally during university, and that's, you know, that's been established as fact in, 
some epidemiological studies. So all, all doctors have heard of cannabis. Now, the problem is, is that over the last 10, 20 years, we've started to understand that cannabis or some of the phytocannabinoids or the manipulation of the cannabinoid receptors in the body does have beneficial effects for a certain number of conditions. And we're just we're learning more about this as every month goes by. Now, the problem is that if you're a, 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 um, a research body or a pharmaceutical body and you develop a cannabis-based medicinal product, you collect your clinical evidence um, that it's beneficial, that it's got a good side effect profile. You can then take it to the MRHA and you can start taking it to doctors and say, look, we think this medical product is going to be of benefit. Now, because the doctors have heard of it before, then their, their understanding of how of cannabis um, is from the get-go slanted. Right. It's very difficult for medical doctors currently, I think, to differentiate recreational cannabis from medicinal cannabis because their only experience of cannabis in the past is likely to have been recreational or they see patients using it recreationally in an uncontrolled pattern, which doctors find difficult, very difficult to deal with you know, in their own medical culture. That makes, I mean, that makes um, a lot of sense. Uh, but then I guess the, the other issue that we're facing with cannabis is because of its widespread availability on the black market um, and because of some high profile cases like the Billy Caldwell case uh, and others like that, which uh, have shown, at least in you know, certain environments, that the medicine is effective and um, many patients really swear by it, there's obviously a, a frustration from their side and an urgency. Uh, so there isn't really the time to go through um, a whole load of trials and, and processes ahead of people having access to this. So I guess the question uh, that many people have is how do we bring the two worlds together, which is the patients with an urgent need and the people who uh, have been using this to, to treat for a long time and, and abroad as well, um, and then the, the medical system that we've got in the UK, which is so reliant on evidence, which is, which is there for all, of, uh, for all of our safety if we, if we go in to see a doctor. So how do we, how do we try and merge the two? Um, and, and I guess I'm interested to hear that from a medical perspective, but also, Steve, from a policy. Yeah, and, that, and that's the really the bit. That was the challenge that we set Daniel, uh, David, and Charles. In a sense, that's the, I think, the breaking the embargo report, which I think Daniel will talk, talk about now, is our response to that very challenge. Yeah, of course. So you, you've hit the nail on the head. There's two factors that patients um, uh, want access now for medicines that they feel are going to be beneficial to them. If there's, there's already, you know, 75% of people using uh, recreational cannabis for its medical effects already have stated that they want to move over to an NHS prescription, but the doctors prescribe, you know, who would give these NHS prescriptions are not willing, A, because they don't have the knowledge, all the cultural things we've just talked about, and uh, it's currently not commissioned. And so how can we, how can we provide a, an environment where patients are able to access uh, cannabinoid therapeutics for their symptomatic relief or the, the release from, you know, for their pathology. And yet, how can we satisfy the doctors that we have enough evidence or are generating enough evidence to allow them to prescribe in a comfortable matter? Now, I think that if we just forced doctors to start prescribing these drugs through access programs, so let's say if you look at the Australian access program where uh, patients are able to apply for access to a cannabinoid therapeutic in a very tightly regulated fashion, nevertheless. But essentially, doctors' hand are forced and are you know and are, are encouraged to prescribe these drugs. I think that in the UK, that would 
automatically put off the vast majority of prescribers in your either in your hospital setting or in your GP practice setting. And so we have to have an environment where patients can get access as they uh, so they don't have to buy off the street in a kind of an un unregulated and quite frankly a dangerous setting, and yet have enough evidence to satisfy the medical body that they're doing a good thing and this is for the benefit of society. And in the report, um, we come up with a strategy to try and bring these two, bring, the, bring these two environments together. Brilliant. So, um, I guess so. It'd be good to understand a bit more about that strategy um, and how it's tailored so specifically to the needs of the UK medical system. Sure. So, so in the UK, the one that the, the language of change in the medical profession is clinical evidence, as you stated. And so if we are going to start introducing the prescribing of cannabis-based medicinal products, it has to be in the context of generating high fidelity, large volumes of data. Now, we suggested that uh, we need a, we can't just allow, because currently in the UK, when you know medical research comes out um, through de novo clinical uh, research academic centers and so you get one center and they have a real interest in say the quality of sleep and they will produce high high value quality sorry high quality studies looking at sleep but of course how can we encourage centers then to to, to generate data about cannabis-based medicinal products when they have no in a, no basic interest in the in the production of this data and so what we wanted to do with this well our idea was to uh, have a, a centrally coordinated uh, authority which would respond to the national agenda and commission research on a national scale that would suit the uh, the requirements of policy the requirements of clinicians and the requirements of patients to uh, to design studies that would uh, you know, answer all of these all these all these three areas Okay, brilliant. So I guess there's a, you, you mentioned a few things there um, and I think it would be interesting to, to dig into the, um, the detail around how it would work with any studies that are commissioned. So what, you know, what happens if you have a group of people who are willing to engage with this sort of um, people who believe in, in, in this and they want to support the trial. So what, what, what would actually happen um, in a study? How does that practically work? Sure. So, so you have this na nationally coordinated centre with all the all the kind of um, the, the field leaders um, setting the the agenda. So, for example, I mean, Nice have issued their, their initial report suggesting that um, cannabis-based medicinal products should be examining things such as chemotherapy-induced nausea, yeah. uh, spasticity, and multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, for example. Now, the authority uh, we we call it so the Cannabinoid Clinical Trials Authority would decide. Uh, on the areas of most clinical need and design within themselves uh, how the trials would run. So these would be nationally coordinated trials. They would uh, have specific endpoints as set by the authority and be, and be funded as such. Now, the, 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 the trials authority itself would not be carrying out these trials because what we want to do is, is to recruit the, world lead, so the, the, the nationally leading academic centres to conduct the trials on behalf of the authority. So we would commission the trials, uh, put together exactly how the trials would run, what we want to get out of them, and what scale, what scope they would be on, what scale, and then essentially put up to tender um, to academic centres, and we could then pick from the academic centres uh, coming forth to, to you know, accepting the tender to take the trials forward. 
Now, I, I'm sure the next question would be how the trial, what the trials would actually look like. Yeah. I think the trials would, would essentially run along two lines, and we touch, well, we go into to some detail in the report about this. There are two groups of people who may benefit from the prescribing of a cannabis-based medicinal product, whom we need to know more data, and we will gather more data around. The first is people who are not already using recreational cannabis for its therapeutic effects. So, Cannab- example, sort of cannabis-naive patients. I'm sorry. So cannabis-naive patients, people who are exactly. they don't the, know the cannab- they don't know a exactly. lot about it. Yeah, the cannabis-naive patient. So this is a, the, your patient with. Uh, chemotherapy-induced nausea who has a terrible quality of life because none of the medicines that we prescribe them are any, any, do them any good. Yeah. Or patients with palliative disease who are in intractable pain, who are unable to get off opiates and, or, and suffer from all their side effects. And so what we want to know is, does the, does the prescribing of a cannabinoid therapeutic in these patients make any difference? Now, because these patients have never been exposed to cannabis before. They don't use it. They don't go into the street to get to get it. They have never tried cannabis. These are ideal patients to, to recruit into randomized controlled trials. These are the highest quality trials um, in the field, and they look if when when properly conducted in the right scope and in the right using the right method, they produce very high quality data as to whether the cannabinoid therapeutics are of any use or not. So that just to just so that's where you all have. Um, some patients who are who are um, being given particular cannabinoid therapy, and some patients who aren't. And uh, at the end of it, you compare the two data sets. Yes. Yeah, so, so let's say you're a, you have a palliative a group of patients with palliative disease with terrible pain. They're all taking opioids and some other uh, painkillers. Now, in the randomized controlled trial, for example, you would give them. You wouldn't take away their their the painkillers that they're already taking because that's that's unethical. You couldn't you couldn't substitute that for a placebo. That's absolutely unethical. But what you could do in these patients is, in addition to their the medicines they're already taking, is give them either a cannabinoid therapeutic medicine or a placebo alongside their existing therapy right. okay. and see what the effect is. Do they have an increased quality of life? Are they managed to do they manage to reduce the number of uh, traditional medicines as in you know opioid medicines that they are they are taking? It's in these patients that we would get um, the real data as to whether cannabinoid therapeutics are of any use. Now, on the other hand, we also have, we know about a, you know, up to a million patients in the UK who are using recreational cannabis for their diseases, whether it be multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, pain, anxiety, the list goes on. Now, in these patients, we can't really put them into a randomized controlled trial using a placebo. And the reason for this is very similar to the previous uh, group of patients that you can't take away a medicine that we know they're getting benefit from. Yeah. For yeah, example, yeah. though, the, the they cut against the uh, no harm principle. Away from them and give them a placebo because that it also is unethical. And so we can't really push these patients into a randomized controlled trial. But what we can do is um, say, look, we know that you're going to the street to buy recreational cannabis. Um, in an uncontrolled, unregulated, illegal fashion. But what we will, what we are going to do is substitute the me- the medicinal cannabis that you are buying for a high grade pharmaceutical medicinal cannabis. And so we're going to take your street cannabis, and you can't use it anymore. We're going to bring you in from the cold and give you a medical, uh, pharmaceutical medical uh, cannabinoid therapeutic. Now 
we are not enabling them to use recreational cannabis. What we will do is study them very closely. And so these will be what we call modern observational trials. And so these will be very closely, uh, closely monitored patients. We'll be seeing them every couple of days or every couple of weeks, watching very closely for any side effects, any adverse events. Um, and we can then we can then learn in a very high fidelity way about what what works for people and what the effects are of these drugs. Now, we need to be very clear. Now, these observational trials are open to bias, and that's part of the problem with observational trials. But what it does do is it allows us to, as I say, bring people from in from the cold and allows the doctors involved in the trial to learn more about the actual nuts and bolts of how people take rec uh, medicinal cannabis or rec recreational cannabis for medicinal purpose. And it's in these people that we start to generate a lot of clinical competence. Now, taking sense. a step back, we have the randomized controlled trial patients and the observational trial patients. Now, the observational trial patients develop the clinical competence, whereas the randomized controlled trial patients generate the clinical data. And it's the combination of these two wings of the of the of the trials that lead to the instruction of national policy uh, on the prescribing and the scheduling of cannabis-based products. That I mean, that makes um, a lot of sense to me. I guess my only other question, and this is maybe partly medical, partly policy. I don't know. Um, is is what's the rationale for trying to centralise this and coordinate it? Because uh, I'm aware of a few people that are working on plans for trials or, or, or looking to launch trials, but they aren't necessarily coordinated. So it would be good to get a view on what difference that would make ultimately for doctors and for patients, which is really what we're talking about. But uh, if, we, if, if we coordinate and if there is a central body that's supporting these processes, Sure. Well, we know that it takes 10 to 15 years from a, from a, a design to implementation to, to get a, a, a drug into the hands of prescribers and a, a medicinal drug to get into the hands of prescribers. And that's just frankly too long. I mean, there are patients who are out there on the street at the moment, you know, buying recreational cannabis from, 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 from we, we don't know who, we don't know what's in the drugs. They're exposing themselves to all sorts of contaminants, of the presence of other drugs, for example. And we we know from surveys that patient, you know, pay, uh, people using recreation cannabis kind of don't want exposure to this. They want to come in from the cold now. And I don't think we can wait 15 years for this. If we allow, and there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong, I have to state that, for, of people doing clinical research uh, on their own in their academic centre, going on the traditional route, that's absolutely fine. But the problem is that that these studies themselves may not answer the national agenda. We right. know that we need answers in the next two to three years as to whether these should be prescribable in the NHS. We, we can't wait 15 years for that to happen as it would normally do if left to its own devices. So this is, um, so this, uh, this is designed in a way to, to accelerate things, to, to, to bring together the knowledge in the, the, that's being created to enable policy makers to, to take a different view. Um, is, is yeah, that so? Sorry, there, there, there are some core questions which we need to answer urgently about medicinal cannabis, and having a nationally coordinated effort in the answering these questions, I think, is the only way to answer them satisfactorily. Okay, brilliant. Um, I mean, Steve, it's just in yeah. terms of that, from a policymaker's perspective, is that that's something that presumably you'd expect would would help them enormously? No, absolutely, absolutely. I think the. the um, in the aftermath of the uh, NICE guidelines and the NHS uh, review, um, there is 
yeah, this is an opportunity to really open up this debate. And I think it's in Daniel's report, he cites examples from Denmark. And I think yeah. that's the most relevant example uh, where there has been a pragmatic approach to this issue by creating a national pilot. And I think it's um, uh, over the course of the, the coming weeks, I think the government will be exposed to some serious interrogation regarding its intent regarding this policy. Yeah, Because I think that there is a huge public expectation that something will move on this. Uh, and politicians have done little to quash that. And now we're in a situation where uh, there has there are very uh, considerable impediments, and I think so. We now, I think, what I think this paper does in the context of those reports is that it opens up a new public debate about how we regulate medicines, how we, and, and the very specific exceptionalism of cannabis. That's the key, right? Because yeah. basically, in a sense, cannabis isn't like other novel medicines because you can buy it off your neighbours, you can acquire it online, you can, your garden. It, you can grow it in your garden, and in most of those domains it's because it's not being policed. So um, as I'll argue in a piece next week that uh, comes out alongside this podcast, my concern is that if we don't move quickly on the issues around medicinal cannabis, this thing will then be taken over by a much bigger, a, a bigger, more clamorous debate for full, uh, rec for full legalization in the way that Canada has, and I think there is an issue now about whether we can, whether the whether the momentum behind recreational cannabis will bypass um, the timescales of the NHS. That makes sense. I mean, that makes sense, and I guess, and uh, the report also talks a little bit about some of the um, the overseas, uh, the other jurisdictions, other countries who've who may be a little bit more advanced in their medicinal cannabis programs and, and what works and what doesn't. And it sounds like you've called out uh, Denmark as, as one that's particularly interesting. Um, and and I, th I think that's that's really, really very interesting. I think the, the question I, I suppose I, I have is, since I joined the industry, um, most people ask me uh, if to think of them if they need anyone for you know, to, to do some free samples and free trials. So um, how, how are you going to address that um, aspect of it, which uh, I'm sure doctors and clinicians and nurses and everybody else working in the health service are, are a little bit worried about being inundated with people who, who aren't really sick and who really just want to try and get access to cannabis? It might be easier to answer that question. So. <clears throat> When we in in designing the the, sort of the format of the the authority and the trials, the, the trials really do have to be conducted by specialists rather than GPs. And the reason is that I think it will prevent people being looking for a free ride. Essentially, we're well aware that you know cannabis is a widely used recreational drug for its recreational effects, and we're only interested in those who may benefit from it medically. I think if we coordinate the study and use specialists and hospital specialists who regularly prescribe in their in their area so for example neurologists or psychiatrists or uh, a gastroenterologist for example if we use them as the gatekeepers rather than gps uh, we think that it will um, allow us to to weed out those who are truly um will be of benefit in this trial for their medical problem and those who are seeking to seeking to use it recreationally 
Um, in, in addition, we stated in this, in the kind of the, the early format of the trials, that we wouldn't initially, you know, initially recommend the prescribing of more than a couple of doses of, of a cannabinoid medicine without uh, having to seek a repeat prescription in order to prevent people um, sort of uh, going off with their kind of six months worth of cannabis and never being seen again. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're all aware that this sort of safety in, in, that, in that regard is uh, a very high priority. Okay. I mean, look, so it sounds very much like uh, you've looked at the problem, you understand that the only way, uh, or your, your suggestion is that the only way we can do this is really by engaging with the needs of clinicians, uh, helping them under, and also dealing with the urgent need of many, very many patients. And by doing that, it'll enable policymakers to make the decisions that for so many people are obvious, but, but obviously are, are not for them. So I think um, for anyone who's interested in the report, I think it's well worth uh, getting a copy. Steve, where can, um, where can people yeah, get so, hold of this? So people can download this from the resources section of the CMC website. That's www.cmcuk.org. Uh, and uh, we welcome any feedback that you have on it. Brilliant. So and people can just uh, get in contact and, and take it from there. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Daniel Couch and Steve Moore. Thanks very much. Thank you, Harry. Thank you, Daniel. Take it.